Welcome everybody to the next episode of the SAMOPS Military Specialty Spotlights podcast. Today we have Dr. Jacob Matthew, who is an internal medicine attending at Parkview Hospital in Pueblo, Colorado. So welcome, Dr. Matthew. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, so let's start off by just talking about where you went to medical school, why you chose the Army, and so on. Yeah, so I went to medical school at Midwestern University or Arizona College of Osteopathic Medicine um, in Glendale, Arizona. I had a, maybe not the typical progression to the military. Um, I initially you know, applied for medical school. During the process of waiting to get in, then I thought about going into the military. Uh, the reason why was it had nothing to do with money or anything like that. And the reason why I even bring up the atypical course towards it was because I already had all my loans set up. So actually, when I got in and it got accepted to the military, I had to go back and cancel all my loans out since I knew I was going to need them, right? Uh, but the reason why I did it is because at least, you know, I'm of Indian origin or ethnicity. And my parents and in the Indian culture, you know, serving in the military is very respected. Mm-hmm. It's an honored thing. And it still is even in the American you know, culture as well. And so I wanted to kind of start that tradition in my family um, since I'm the first generation with my sister here to live in America. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to start that. And I really felt that as physicians, we have a huge talent that we can offer. And we know that, you know, we can provide care that other people might not be able to provide. But how awesome would it be to, be able to provide that care to the men and women who are basically going above and beyond to make sure we can go to sleep at night being safe, you know? So I wanted to make sure that I could not only provide that care to them, but also potentially start a tradition of my family that hopefully live on well beyond me. Yeah, that sounds great. And so why did you choose IM? Yeah, internal medicine, it was interesting when I did my third year of rotation. So after I finished the first two years at Arizona, I knew I wanted to do more of a rural medicine because I had Really, I lived and grew up in Ohio, and I kind of lived in more of a rural type town. So I was like, you know, I know I, that's the kind of medicine that I'm going to learn a lot from because you might have patients who come in who have, have not been seen for months or weeks, and now they're coming in with something that's manifested well beyond what you're like, oh my gosh, what you might not see in a textbook. So I figured that I'd be able to see a lot more pathology with that. And with that, when I did my internal medicine rotation, the things I really liked about it was two factors. One, that you got to follow a patient from pretty much beginning to end. You might have someone that you pick up when they're 18 years old in the outpatient setting, and you might have them as a patient even well beyond 70 or 80 years old. On the inpatient setting when I did that, you got to see the patient again from the minute they are worked up, whether or not it was the right diagnosis in the ER, or maybe you have to challenge it and kind of find something different, but then you can potentially provide solutions and answers to them. So it was being able to see that, and then honestly, when you do internal medicine, there's so much you need to know. And I liked that challenge. I, I didn't want to have to focus on one specific area, which I why I've chosen to specialize. You know, I do wilderness medicine and simulation medicine too. But even with those, there's such broad areas, which is what attracts me to it, because you never know, honestly, from an inpatient perspective, what's going to walk into the door and what you're going to be presented the next morning. Like, hey, here's what's on your list. And you have to be ready to go. And it keeps you constantly requiring to study and learn which I think when you go into medicine, you know that that's part of the stipulation. Like you've kind of stamped that requirement. You will be a lifelong learner. So internal medicine kind of um, allowed me to continue that pursuit. Yeah, definitely. And that's one of the reasons uh, I'm kind of leaning against it because it's so much knowledge. (laughs) Y'all are like all geniuses. Um, But it is nice for the inpatient side to see everything, you know, all the interventions you did from start to end. Absolutely. What advice do you have for students when choosing a specialty? You know, the, a lot of times when I ask medical students, what are you leaning towards? You know, some, we've had some currently in our program right now that are saying, you know, pediatrics, some are saying um, uh, orthopedic surgery or any surgical thing. And I tell them why, you know, what interests you about it? They often say, well, the patient population too, but I also ask them, well, what about the quality of life, right? 
because it's important to consider that because you'll see sometimes residents, whether they're going into internal medicine and don't like the quality of life, or they go into general surgery and after five years of being in the residency, they're like, oh, uh, you know, is, was this the right decision? And then they're like, well, should I continue on just for the sake of all the investment of time you put in or should you change? And I'll always tell them, you should change. Do whatever you feel is gonna not only be the best quality of life for you and your future family or if you already have a family, but what is that thing that's gonna make you wake up in the morning and like, I'm, I can't wait to do this. For me, it's, I can't wait to see what's gonna walk through that door that I'm gonna have to read about, right? Right now we have a patient, they're working up for tuberculosis, right? And you never know, like that's, yeah, you might consider that's more of a pulmonary thing, but we're on the front lines. We only get, you know, the specialists involved unless they can do something that we can't do. So if you feel like that's something that you're gonna wake up and granted every day, you're not gonna have that feeling. You're gonna have ups and downs. You have a lot of burnout that we're seeing throughout the medical field, but you're gonna still have that passion. That's something that you still gravitate to. And then look at the preceptors and the uh, attendings who you worked with and see, ask them about when you have questions about a specialty, like what do you like about it? You know, if people are asking me, I'm gonna tell them exactly what I just told you about. You just never know what's gonna walk in. And what's nice about internal medicine is it's kind of like a stepping stone to other specialties if you want to do it. You know, if I have someone who, and I have another military um, service member here as a medical student, and he was considering, you know, emergency medicine versus critical care. And I said, well, the great thing is they do a lot of the same things. The nice thing about critical care is you get to follow them a lot longer though. So if you really want to just stabilize and then kind of move on, emergency medicine is a great thing to do. If you want to stabilize, but then continue to monitor those patients, you know, critical care is a great thing. So internal medicine gives you a chance to have like a three-year buffer to kind of figure out if there's something in a specialty that you want to do. But look at the quality of life and then look at something that's going to keep you wanting to pursue that knowledge. Because if you have that constant desire to either operate on people, you know, do immediate surgeries, or if you want to do the non-surgical route and just have to constantly be learning and like you said, keeping up with all this literature that's coming out on a daily or minute by minute basis, then it kind of helps you steer at least in one direction or another. And you might not know exactly what surgery if you want to do a surgical field, but you could do general surgery and then decide if you want to specialize even from there. Right. Yeah, that's a good point. And you brought up something that I want to talk about because I don't think we have any other speakers that talked about it. Switching residencies. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a thing in the civilian world. I know that I've heard people, you know, want to go to EM, get burnt out and switch to IM or something like that. When you were in the military, did you see any military docs switch residencies? Absolutely. And I saw even military physicians who finished one residency and then decided that's not what I want to do. And then they changed residencies. So the record that I've personally seen is three residencies. For someone, oh, wow. um, this individual started with internal medicine, and then he went to PM&R, and then he became a radiologist. And I was an interventional radiologist. Now, here's the cool thing about that: when he would put his reads in, it wasn't always correlate clinically or clinical correlations recommended. Right. It was these are legitimate differentials he would put in there. You're like, oh my gosh, that actually is helpful to us, right? <laughs> As internists, yeah. so you didn't really get to see it too often. So it was kind of a cool combination. I remember I asked him how difficult was it for you to even add on? And I've talked to the prior uh, medical consultant from internal medicine, um, uh, Dr. Toffrey. Um, she was a prior before I got out. And I was asking her, like, is it really hard to add an additional residency on? She goes, well, it depends on the operational tempo. If we have a lot of deployments coming up or there's a big cycle going on in the operational field, then it might be difficult. But you know, we're starting to rear back right now. So this would be an opportunity that I think you're not gonna really see in the civilian world because the big limitation I think for civilian residencies is the money, right? You're gonna be paid maybe not as well as you would like to be paid. So you're like, I wanna do another residency. Maybe this was not what I wanted to do and now I found what I wanna do, but I already finished it. 
but I can't afford, I already have all these loans I need to pay off. I can't afford to do another residency. We don't have to worry about with the HPSP, even the UCHS program. You're not dealing with that. So the military is actually very friendly if you do choose to change your mind. And even if you don't finish the residency, the most common times I saw it was uh, people who are in general uh, surgery and then they decided either after that first year or even after three or four years to get out. Um, I had someone was my friend who was five years into an ophthalmo ophthalmology residency. And then she decided to change and become an emergency medicine. But the military allows that, you know, because I think they really want you to be the best physician possible because then they know it's going to relate to better care for their patients and for the retirees and the veterans. So I have not heard of soldiers really, or in, at least in the military side, and in, honestly, this is DHA world, right? So even on all the military side, having a lot of issues with that, which I think is a big positive for going down the military route. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's a good standpoint. So you mentioned in there kind of the operational tempo. Let's talk a little bit about your deployments and your experience in the Army. Do you have any advice for us on what deployments to take? Absolutely. I know when I first joined and I was still learning, you know, fresh new butter bar and trying to get ideas and advice from either other enlisted personnel or officers, you know, the one thing that kept coming up is never volunteer for anything. And to me, I thought that was actually the worst advice that I ever got from a military perspective. Because I think when you volunteer for things, that's your chance to learn and experience things that you'll never get a chance to experience. One of the a talk that we had for a keynote when I graduated from residency at Triple Army Medical Center was from a two-star general. Um, and he was saying, try and leave the military gaining more than what was put in. And what that means by that is get more out of the military than the military gets out of you. And what he, again, what he kind of meant by that is look for these opportunities, look for these things that other people are not gonna get a chance to do. How many other of your civilian uh, colleagues are gonna get a chance to do austere medicine in Iraq or Afghanistan, in Syria or Iran, right? They're not gonna get a chance to do that. You know, we have troops in Egypt, we have some still in Iraq, we have some still in Afghanistan. And these are opportunities for you to practice medicine no matter what your field is, family, internal medicine, ER, general surgery, trauma, whatever it is. These are things that you're going to see that are going to put you above and beyond your colleagues back here in the continental CONUS, what we call continental United States, um, whether they're military or if they're not military. And those opportunities are going to open up not only jobs when you get eventually get out of the military, but it really teaches you a lot about leadership. So, you know, my first deployment was to Afghanistan uh, back in 2016. And I remember the reason why I came up was because the physician who was already there, he had gotten accepted to a residency. He was a GMO and he had I accepted to a residency, so my brigade surgeon had asked me at the time, hey, you know, we have a spot opening up. Do you want it? So here you go. Here's a classic thing. A volunteer. Do you want that spot? And I said, absolutely. You know, and you're not going to immediately go in and say, I'm excited. I'm not nervous. I can't wait to do it. You're obviously going to be, you know, nervous. And the reason why is because when you do operational, you're kind of out of your comfort zone. We're so used to being in a hospital or in the library or wherever, you know, that kind of setting. But to be in a zone where you're not the one, like the head poncho, is very humbling. So I had to immediately quickly learn, okay, what are the customs and courtesies, all this kind of stuff. And the minute I came out there, I tried to pick up and absorb as much information I could from whether it was a P0 or we call them fuzzies because they don't have a rank on them or even up to the E9s. You know, you find out from every single person different advice they can give you. And I still, those are some of my best friends that I have in the military were the people that you deploy with because you go through a lot of stuff that no other people, not a lot of people really understand. And there's not that many true combat veterans too, you know? So to have that connection, even with someone you've never met, but you know, I have two veterans right now on my panel and the minute I see them wearing their hat, I immediately just talk to them. And that creates a connection 
that you might not be able to create if you were not prior military. You know, I've been able to do that with some of these veterans because they immediately understand that you might be able to understand some of the difficulties they've gone through. So, you know, my second one wasn't a combat, it was over to Germany, but I helped set up there. I was an aviation unit, um, so I was a flight surgeon. So we helped set up their aviation protocol and their MASCAL protocol. And these are things when it comes to SOPs or standard operating procedures, as a resident or as a medical student or wherever you are, even as just as a physician, as an attending, if you're not military, you're never gonna do that stuff. And you're gonna be put in these leadership positions as a civilian that you might not be ready for, or maybe you have to wait 10, 15 years before you feel like you have the credentials to now sit in those spots. Right out of medical school and out of residency, you'll be put in those positions in the military. And I think that is an awesome asset because what you'll leave having that leadership experience and feel more comfortable being able to talk to some of the people that are CEOs or CMOs or CFOs. Like right now, I'm gonna start uh, my MBA program in summer. And the reason why is because I feel like I have the leadership training that the military gave me through deployments to be able to now escalate that next point in my career. Sure, yeah, that's really interesting. So one of the concerns we had was um, assimilating after residency into the military life. So, you know, you, you come in as an 03 or maybe 04 if you spend long enough in residency <laughs> um, and you have all these enlisted soldiers and, you know, other line officers who see you as just a doc and no, no military experience. How do you earn their trust? That's a great question. It depends what kind of unit you're in. So I was in an aviation unit, which is within, you know, an, an operational unit or the infantry. So I was with uh, 4th Combat Aviation Brigade, which is within 4th Infantry Division or 4th ID, right out here in uh, Fort Carson, Colorado. And I spent time even with 10th Mountain Division as well. And what I learned that really set me up was if you come in understanding, it reminds me of how residents and even staff are in the ICU. If you know that you can go and be humble and say, you know what, this nurse, whether or not he or she has 10 years or one year, whatever it is, it's probably a lot more experience than I have in the ICU. And if I can trust that they are going to look out for me and give me advice and not say, you know what, I'm the physician. I'm going to say this is what the order should be. And instead say, you know what, I completely respect that. If you think that's what's best for the patient, then let's do it. You know, obviously running it by your senior, then that's going to lead you toward that humility is going to lead to great things. So in the operational setting, when I came in, I didn't say, hey, my name is Captain Matthew. This is how we're going to run oper you know, the operational medicine. Because honestly, I didn't even know how operational medicine was, right? You're so used to putting in um, you know, chest x-rays or orders or admissions. And then you come to operational and you have to deal with medical readiness. We're like, okay, wait, what's a profile? How do you fill out a profile? What's this med evals program? What's an MEV? I remember when I first joined right out of residency, I thought naively that I would never have to write an MEV. I was like, oh my gosh, I don't even know what that is, which is a medical evaluation board, you know, evaluation. Um, so when you have to discharge a service member because of a medical condition, they have to go through an MEV. And I was like, oh, I'll probably never have to do that. And then within my first month, I had like 10 that I had already written. Mm -hmm. But you are also put into these situations that, again, the military loves to do this, that you're not comfortable with. But they know that you were chosen to be an officer and a leader because you know how to handle those situations. And you will do what's best to kind of figure it out. So I worked with my PA, and I immediately knew she, her name was uh, Captain Freeman. Now she's Major Freeman. You know, I said, hey, I have no idea. I'm out of my element. You know, I'm coming out from MEDAC. And I've never done this before, so let's work together and kind of figure this out. And she really embraced that. She knew, she saw, okay, this is a physician who's not going to try and tell me what to do. He understands that I have 16 years of experience, and he has literally none, because you're not really going to count the time that you're protected in MEDAC during residency. So that helped, you know, that ability to be humble and to kind of look for advice. And then I immediately went to the commander. 
So anytime you're doing an operational unit, you can even argue even at MEDAC, you should do this. You should immediately report to your superior, whoever's gonna be on your um, OER, like on your rating scheme, and say, hey, my name is Captain blah, blah, or Major blah, blah, you know, depending on how long you're in residency for, reporting for duty. You know, and I mentioned that to some of my colleagues who are going from green to gold, and I tell them, you know, it sounds kind of weird to do that, and kind of like way over formal, but those kind of customs and courtesies are starting to kind of fade away from the military, but a lot of the commanders still respect that, and they want to see that. And if they see that from you, they know that you've done the time to research what's important to them. So the first thing I did is I found out who my battalion commander was when I became operational and I reported to her desk. I said, ma'am, this is Captain Matthew reporting for duty. And then I introduced myself. I said, this is my goals for your unit. I want to see this, but I want to hear more about what are the concerns you have that you feel that we should be doing as your medical assets that can help improve the mission and our medical readiness. And that's what she really was impressed by. The fact that I was not telling her what I thought was necessary. I wanted to hear from her what she thought was necessary, and then we could work together, just like we work together with patients to figure out their care, we could work together to find out how to kind of optimize medical readiness. So I would say being humble and knowing that you can ask others for advice, whether it's your PA or even your private. So I had you know, two, uh, one private, another specialist, and then I had a sergeant and an E7 too. So I had a pretty stacked, you know, in retrospect, uh, medical team. But I told them, okay, what are our responsibilities? How often do we go to the field? What is the field? Oh, okay, so we'd set up a tent. Well, what does the tent look like, right? Those are the things that they told me after I left that gained their trust because they saw a physician who wasn't just coming in to see patients and then leave at the end of the day. He, this was a person that wanted to actually learn what they're doing. I wanted to see what is it like to set up these tents. Why? Because first of all, it's not just see one, do one, teach one, or I'm just gonna sit in the back and kind of watch them do work. I'm gonna be there working with them. We're a team, right? And the second thing I would do is I would go over to the aviators and watch them doing their job around the helicopters. I'd go to the transport, the motor yard on motor pool Mondays, uh, which is like an army thing. On every Monday, you know, you service your vehicle. And I'd say, okay, what do we have to do with our vehicle? How do we service it? How do you do an inspection, right? And then I would watch the mechanics changing things. You may say, well, why are you really doing that? Well, when they come to see me for an injury, I wanna know, is this like a legitimate reason why you'd injure it? Or this is kind of weird. I need to delve a little more into it because we're not gonna be seeing heart failures or diabetes and stuff like that as much from an internal medicine perspective. We're gonna be seeing a lot of musculoskeletal, which if you're not family medicine or even orthopedics, is way kind of out of your comfort zone. So you very quickly learn how to diagnose and manage these conditions in, this, in potentially an austere environment where you don't have a chest X-ray, MRI, or CT available to you. And your commander needs immediate results. So, so going out there, truly understanding what people are going through, what are their concerns about their medical care? Do they feel like they are not able to you know, report their medical conditions because they feel like that's gonna be held against them? So constantly going around and keeping a presence so soldiers can come up to you, which happened all the time. And yeah, some can consider it kind of annoying, like, oh my gosh, I can't even go to the DFAC without someone coming up to me. But I didn't think about that. I thought of it as a compliment. They trusted me and respected me enough that they want to come and hear my opinion. And especially from an aviation perspective, you know, if some of the listeners go into aviation, which I highly recommend, you know, it's, it gives the pilots and the crew members someone that they can trust. They know this isn't a flight surgeon who's just going to ground them. This is someone who really wants to see them get better and progress their aviation career. So I think of all those things I said, you know, like humility and then really trying to appreciate other people's jobs and their MOSs or whatever, you know, the AOS, uh, depending on what branch you're in, and learning what they do and then how that can correlate to medical injuries really creates 
makes you a strong asset if you're a commander, and I think it's really going to correlate to better medical readiness. Yeah, no, that's really good information. I feel like I should listen to that segment like five times before <laughs> I go on any deployment. But, you know, that's kind of post-medical school. Let's shift mm -hmm. gears to what we can do in medical school now. What advice do you have for us to be strong officers of the military, and what can we do in medical school to work on our officership now? Yeah, so during medical school, you know, the first, I remember some of the things I kind of thought about while we were preparing for this segment was, what were summers like, right? And I remember, wait, what was summer like? Oh, wait, I didn't really have a summer because in the military, you're doing either your BOLIC, you know, it was, um, I forget, we had a different acronym because they mm -hmm. changed it a lot. Um, but you go through your basic training for officers um, and then you get every year, you have like a four week segment of active duty training that they'll offer you. So I'd say like during medical school, BOLIC, while it seems, and it probably hasn't changed much, it seems like it was just a huge progression of just PowerPoints. Looking back at it, the information was so vital to truly understand, and you're not really going to understand it from a PowerPoint, right? We learn mostly as physicians by putting our hands on something or seeing it, um, and Bullock is the same way. Yeah, you might see that PowerPoint, but until you go operational and actually see these certain things going into play, like TCCC and, you know, medevacs and all that kind of stuff, you don't really understand the components and how it can affect a mission. So I'd say as a medical student, trying to do your best to pay attention in Bullock, if possible, or at least retain the material they give you. So when you eventually go operational or if you, because they're getting rid of the PROFIS system, so you will be attached to a unit in DHA in some aspect. And we can talk about that later. But, you know, having that material is going to be helpful because if you try and Google it, you're not going to find it. You can go through AKO and try and find it and you might be able to find it. But those PowerPoints are there for a reason and they take a lot of time creating those programs because they're trying to set you up so you don't show up, like, honestly, like I did. I'm like, I have no idea what I'm doing here, but I had a good you know, PA to help me with it. Um, so paying attention to Bullock and then really looking at the res or the programs or those four-week rotations that you're doing. And you know, one of the jokes that we saw was, you know, a lot of people wanted to go to Hawaii just because it was Hawaii, not necessarily because of the rotations that were there or the quality of them. And I'd say, you know what, eventually, even when you're beyond the military, and you're a physician, you'll have enough money that eventually you can go to Hawaii. You don't need the military to pay for it. So I would say focus on rotations that you're either going to, uh, it's going to help because of the decision you want to make, like it's, whether it's internal medicine, you know, special operations, general surgery, whatever it is. But choose those rotations that are also in an area, maybe there's operational units, and you're like, oh, maybe I'm thinking operational. Maybe I'm going to go up to Washington and Madigan because I know they have a special forces unit there. And I want to go and see them, you know, and talk to whoever you're rotating with or talk to HR um, and, or HRC and say, hey, I'm really interested in maybe being able to see an SF unit while I'm doing some work with the medic. Can you find a rotation for me that is near a unit? Hey, I'm really interested in aviation. Is there a way that I could rotate at Madigan because the, the SF unit there has an aviation, you know, SOAR unit um, for aviation that's attached to them. Or maybe you want to go down to BAMC. You know, BAMC doesn't technically have an aviation unit, but they have a National Guard unit there, so then that's right nearby. So maybe you can rotate with them also. So utilize those rotations to only get one a year and try and use them at least from a military perspective to maybe double tap on multiple things that you could do, not just the hospital experience. Um, and I would also say that from a medical student, no matter what field you go into, try and do rotations that are not gonna be with fellows or other multiple specialties. And the reason why is because you're gonna to get to do a lot more as a medical student if you're at a place that doesn't have fellows that need to meet quotas or meet numbers, even the residents. So like here, you know, we had a lumbar puncture that we did two days ago and the medical student did it. 
right? Because they're not going to get, I know, sorry, right? <laughs> they're not going to get a chance to potentially do that, you know? Um, so I know at uh, Tripler, one of the reasons why I went there for internal medicine, on top of me feeling that it's the best internal medicine program out there, yeah. was because they didn't have fellows. So we did the thoracentesis, we did the pairs, we did all these procedures, we got to intubate, we did these things. And when you go to Bamsey, Walter Reed, Madigan, you might have to technically fight over some of those potentially. Mm -hmm. So that's a benefit to look for in your rotations as a medical student to kind of, again, become more well-rounded. And then exactly what you're already doing, which is joining organizations that are uh, both medical and military based. You know, if you want to do more of the special operations side of things, then there's, you know, SOMA, you know, you have the special operations medical activity and stuff like that over, you know, in the Georgia region. You can go and do some of those conferences and look for AMOPs and all of, you know, try and publish too. You know, military medicine is very welcoming to military publications, obviously. Um, so try and look to see if you can do a publication maybe as a medical student too. You know, all military residencies are very big on uh, publications and research and evidence-based medicine. And that's something that you should really um, kind of look forward to as you embark in your military career. That's not always seen in a lot of civilian programs is being able to do a lot of publications and research and gaining a research background and not just a clinical background. Sure, yeah, that makes sense. So you're an attending here. A lot of us third years are about to start our audition rotations. What advice do you have, or what have you seen from other medical students that stood out to you and you know, said, I want this person in my program? That's a great question. I think that we're not, as attendings, we're not necessarily looking for someone who comes in with a strong funded knowledge. Is it nice to have? Absolutely. But that's what residency is for. We're here to teach you that. We expect that when you leave second year into the third year, it's basically relearning everything that you were dumping out after every week, you know, when you're doing your exams. Yeah. So the third, fourth year, right, you're trying to kind of relearn by applying it with a visual kind of memory stick to what you're seeing with patients. And then, you know, based on that, you're learning how to present. And I would say that something that's important as a medical student that I notice immediately is how comfortable is a medical student presenting to an entire team? Like, are they very nervous? Are they shaking? Are they able to kind of think on their feet? Those kind of things in terms of thinking on your feet are gonna develop with time. But if you can be in your third, you know, halfway through your third year into your fourth year when you're starting your auditions and you can nail a presentation on a patient, you're probably gonna be, you know, wowing a lot of your attendings because we're not really looking, okay, can he or she come up with strong differentials do they know the dosages for these antibiotics? You'll learn that stuff. You know, the differentials, if you can start, that's great. But again, that's what you're going to develop as an intern or as a second year. But understanding how to present a patient in a logical, organized manner as a medical student is what's really going to attract attendings and get their, you know, uh, impress them. Um, and then the humility and the drive to work. So humility, again, knowing when you're wrong and not trying to make something up because you know, when you're attending for long enough, you can kind of pick out like who's kind of making stuff up on you. Like, if you don't know, just tell me you don't know. And then we'll have you look it up and then teach us because we might not know, but we're not going to tell you that. Right? We're just going to say, you know, go, that's a great question. Look it up and then come back to us, right? Everyone knows that trick. Sure. Um, and we and I immediately started using it once I could as an attending. But, um, and then working with a team. And the reason why the ability, I look specifically, especially in a military medical student, their ability to work in a team is because you better believe that's all you're going to do when you leave the, you know, the medic world and you're in the operational setting, it's about working and it's a team and you're the SME or subject matter expert and you need to be able to translate what you know is important to your commander who might not think that's important. Mm -hmm. And when does that ever happen for us? It happens when we're talking to patients. When we're trying to translate what we know is going on to tell the patient, okay, do you understand what's going on? This is why we think this is important. This is why we want to do what we do. 
that exact thing is what happens when you're talking to commanders because they have no idea what's going on with medicine because it's not their job to. That's why you're there. So if you can relay that to your uh, commander and say, hey, sir, ma'am, this is what I think is important and this is how I think it's gonna affect your mission ultimately, they're more likely to pay attention to you than if you use a lot of acronyms, which unfortunately are also seen in the military and a lot of the military acronyms are very similar to what we use. So you might say, SOB, like, wait, for me, that's shortness of breath, but what in the military is that? So there would be so many times in a meeting, I would sit down and write down acronyms, and my peer would kind of look over and just start laughing because she knew I had no idea what they were talking about. But instead of raising my hand, you learn as a medical student, right? Nope, I'm going to write it down, and I'm going to read about it later, and that's what I would do. I'd start Googling, I'm like, what is the military acronym for this, right? Uh, MDMP and all that before I went to Captain Superior Court. So I would say as a medical student, the things to really focus on is your ability to present, try and do in a logical uh, straightforward manner. Work on your anxiety when you're presenting because when you become operational, you will be giving presentations and command briefs to your command team. And it's one of the best ways to get over that anxiety because you're going to have to do it one or another. Um, and we kind of get primed for it be, by having to present in teams and sometimes even to the front of the patient. And then again, that humility, you know, being able to and working with team members is going to translate to being a fantastic officer. Sure, yeah, I didn't think about how kind of presenting patients will help you in the military world, presenting to the colonels and you know, <laughs> lieutenant colonels that you're trying to convince to your plan as well. How do you feel that your uh, training in the military compared to civilian training? It was so much better than civilian training. Now, obviously, that I don't have the only civilian training I had was really when I was a you know first through fourth years and really the third and fourth years of medical school. But the reason why I felt it was so much better is you know, in the medical side of things. We able they really embrace like I mentioned earlier this educational side and really wanting you to learn not necessarily look for zebras but try and really have a broad differential. So we thought you know this patient maybe this is West Nile virus or maybe this is posterior reversible encephalopathy syndrome. Maybe we need to do a lumbar puncture. Well, what are we going to do for lumbar puncture? What are we going to order? Why are we going to order that? Maybe we need to do a Mayo Clinic panel. Maybe we need to order a uh, 1444. Right. So you get to order these things that maybe in smaller hospitals if you're doing a residency in maybe a community hospital, they might not have the resources to run those labs, or maybe they just can't you know, support those kind of aggressive or you know, uh, significant testing. So I thought that was one of the cool things and really interesting things about military medicine is all these MTFs are so large mm -hmm. that they're gonna be able to support this lifelong advance of learning and looking for these differentials and these zebras. And when you have soldiers who are coming from downrange, they may be coming in with these conditions that you might never see in the civilian world. You might not get to see MERS, you know, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome. You, might, you know, SARS isn't really a thing anymore, but you might see some leptospirosis if you're in Hawaii or dengue, but you might not see unless you're doing a residency at a civilian hospital there. So you get to see a lot of international and tropical conditions. And on top of that, you get to do a lot of training within the military too. Um, they have all these courses that they're constantly offering that are free for us through the active duty, uh, through Walter Reed, BAMSI, et cetera, even at Tripler um, to kind of you know, expand on that, which again, in the civilian settings, they're not get a chance to do. Right. And then you get to do, even during your medical school or your residency training, and you can even do the, during this residency, or medical school, I should say, um, doing schools. So you could say, hey, I want to go to airborne school. Why? I just want to do it. Maybe I want to go to an operational unit, and I know that if I want to go to an airborne operational unit, it's going to be required for me to have my airborne wings, you know, more parachute wings. So then you can ask HRC, hey, I want to go to airborne school. Maybe you want to go to ranger school. Maybe you want to go to jungle warfare school over in Hawaii so, or you know, flight school. So there's all these opportunities that in the civilian world you're not going to get a chance to do. 
And you might say, well, what does aviation even translate to on the outside? Well, you can work for the FAA. So my prior brigade surgeon works for the FAA now because he enjoyed it so much when he got out. He's like, I want to continue to do this. So your credentials and the training you get will translate in some cases to a civilian equivalent that you can then do on the side or you can just say, hey, this is the main job I want to do from this point on. Right. So hopefully that answers that question. No, it does for sure. And you know, it's kind of interesting to think about all the different schools you can take. Obviously, you've had a good experience in the Army. You seem to know a lot about it. What made you get out? Yeah, the, the difficult thing for me was uh, when I decided I wanted to start a family and kind of have more stability instead of the th moves every three years interspersed with deployments, that was really the reason why. I, it had nothing to do with uh, my military experience or the people I worked with because I miss them. I still talk to them, especially my soldiers. You know, I, I had very strong bonds with them, whether they're E1s up to the E9s or even you know the 06s that I worked with. But being able to, you know, have, start a family and be able to have that stability for my future, you know, son or daughter was really important to me. Um, so that's eventually why I ended up getting out. I still miss it every day when I see the helicopters flying by, going probably over to Pinion Canyon and back to Fort Carson. I still miss it. I'm like, man, I wish I could be up there with them. Um, but, you know, the great thing is when you get out, you can still do reserves. So that's what I'm doing right now. And you don't have to necessarily just say goodbye to military forever. You know, you, once you're done with your active duty commitment, if you decide that you want to stay on, that's great. If you decide maybe, maybe there's some other opportunities for me on the outside that I might not get a chance to do, then this is an opportunity to kind of still have a military exposure to the reserves um, or, you know, completely get out. Um, but I think that, you know, everyone will have different things that are important to them. And as you progress in your medical career, things will, your priorities are gonna change. Um, and for me, it was very important for me to continue to be able to have a lot of patient interaction. And not just with the military, but honestly with every job you do in medical, as you get higher rank, you're gonna have more administrative you know, responsibilities and that might lead to you doing less and less patient interaction. And it was just so important for me to be in a residency program and being able to still see patients on the side. And this was my best opportunity to do that. On the operational side, I got to train medics, you know, and watch them progress. You know, one of them is actually applying to medical school now, so I'm really proud of him. I have one that's in uh, physical therapy school, and then the other two are going on to be uh, senior NCOs. Um, so it's great to see them progress too, but I just wanted to be able to progress, you know, medical students at this stage of my career, and then just be able to have some stability so I can have a family. Sure, sure, that makes sense. While you're on deployment, um, you know, I've heard, heard it's hard for physicians to keep up skills, you know, especially surgeons, but I am doctors, I'm sure, as well. How did you keep up your internal medicine fund of knowledge while on deployment after residency? That's a great question. You know, like you alluded to, depending on what specialty you are, it might be easier or harder. You know, if you're a general surgeon, if you're seeing a lot of trauma cases, it might not be as hard, you know, for you. But for internal medicine, since we're doing a lot of musculoskeletal issues and not necessarily heart failure, diabetes, you know, thyroid issues, you, know, you would probably be surprised how much we catch either during a deployment or prior to a deployment before we're getting them ready. Like, oh my gosh, you actually have something going on. Um, I've caught, you know, multiple cancers, new diagnoses of thyroid conditions. Uh, I've had one or two, you know, type one diabetics that were never diagnosed because they're young men and women. Uh, but, you know, there's a lot of resources that are out there for internal medicine specifically, whether it's MixApp, which I use a lot of time. ACP has some great resources to kind of help you do question banks, you know, cases or virtual cases where you can go step by step. Um, and then one really cool thing in the military, too, is they have, you know, depending on where you're deployed at, but at least in the Afghanistan region, we had connections with Qatar or Qatar, mm -hmm. and they would do weekly or monthly um, teleconference sessions, and they would do basically like grand rounds. So they say, okay, we have an orthopedic surgeon here in Kuwait. 
they're going to give us a monthly lecture on the evaluation and treatment of knee dislocations, right? Or they might have, you know, an internal medicine doctor, hey, let's go over, you know, random internal medicine conditions. So a lot of our doctors, the nice thing is you're not alone. There's other doctors that are having the same struggle trying to keep up. So there is a network where you're constantly being able to communicate with them um, to keep up with your skills on top of these question banks or the virtual cases. But I, I would say that the one of the major things I miss about the military is how uh, supportive they were with continuing medical, medical education or CME. Mm -hmm. and what, I mean, what I mean by that is on the operational side, uh, they, if I told my commander, hey, I really am not getting a chance to see a lot of internal medicine, even CONUS, right? Even on, in the garrison side, let alone deployed side, you know, I would say, hey, I think I really want to sign up for this video board review package. You know, I could watch the videos as if I was there at the conference. Almost every time they said, absolutely, we know that's important for your job. You know, let's go ahead and do it. And they would authorize that payment because they knew that this was important ultimately for the mission, for me to be able to keep these skills up so I could stay with that unit and not feel that, hey, maybe it's time for me to transfer to different, you know, back to MEDAC because I'm not being able to retain these things. So while, and then even during my operational times that was with an aviation unit, we had a flight unit attached to us um, or a medevac unit. So you have flight medics, which are completely different than regular medics or um, combat medics. So they're more like uh, paramedics on the outside world and the civilian world. So I would actually do um, daily lectures to them and say, hey, let's go over sepsis. Because a lot of the things that we deal with in internal medicine, they have to know for stabilization. Hey, let's go over our vampire program, which is you know the blood transfusion program. Let's go over hemolytic reactions or transfusion reactions. How are you gonna identify you know, transfusion associated cardiac overload? How do you interpret this ABG? Because they are getting all this stuff. And again, in a trauma situation, I told them, you guys know a lot more than I do from an internal medicine perspective. Yeah, I can, I've been taught how to run codes, but once they're stabilized, then they go to the ICU. And then unless I was a critical care doc, I'm really not managing them. But they are managing them and keeping these men and women alive in the most austere of environments you can imagine. So you know, again, that humility, you work with them and hey, you teach me some of this, you know, this trauma stuff. I'm going to teach you the understandings and the basis behind this. Let's go over sepsis. Let's go over, you know, uh, occipital neuralgia and how it can present in patient. Let's go over TBIs or someone that has unilateral, you know, visual deficits and go over the cranial nerves. And they love that stuff. They're always looking for physicians to teach them and they eat it up. So another way you can keep up their skills is by teaching others, right? See one, do one, teach one. So you're like, okay, well, I'm going to teach you about sepsis based off this question bank that I did, or maybe this video that I watched and then doing it. So that there are a lot of opportunities, but it is going to be important for you to also be able to physically treat patients that have those conditions too. And it might require, you know, I was at a role one, but you know, every now and then I would make my way over to the role two. And I'd say, hey, do you have any interesting cases that you're holding here in the ICU? And it was only a five foot ICU. Do you have any interesting cases? Oh, you have this person on event? Okay, let me go over this and see the notes. Okay, is this the event settings I would have done? Why are they on AC, you know, VC and not pressure support? Those kind of things. So you have to kind of seek out opportunities um, to try and maintain internal medicine specific, but there's so many out there that I think today's medical world understands that physicians can't always go to yearly conferences. You know, they're gonna need to have something that is asynchronous on the computer, whether it's a video or an audio podcast, you know, anything like that. So those same resources are available to you even downrange and you work together with other people that are downrange to kind of keep everyone's knowledge up. Yeah, that's good to know they're more supportive. And I've heard other physicians, you know, say it's good to give lectures to the kind of the junior enlisted as well. And I'm sure that goes back to our earlier point where you're building trust between you Absolutely. and them as well.
Um, and I just can't imagine doing a question bank because I want to versus studying for a board <laughs> exam right now. But, you know, we'll see how it goes in the future. Yeah, forced versus wanting to, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so as we wrap up, is there anything else you wanted to give as far as advice for medical students? Yeah, you know, going back to some of the things I said about really having a strong connection to your senior NCOs and even your younger enlisted is going to set you up for success no matter what kind of situation you're in. I know that it came to things as simple as when I had my first award ceremony and I was being pinned on an award, I didn't even know the process of how to do, you know, drill. You know, how do you do a left face or right face? How do you do a 180? You know, how do you know when to stop, you know, after the person has brought to attention, you know, how to do a proper salute. Things that we kind of take for granted within like half a second from it seems like a half a mile away, a sergeant major, if they see you do a salute and it's not the correct way, they will immediately be thinking and forming an opinion about you, right? Mm -hmm. So it's important to learn those things because you remember for us, what's important is um, learning, you know, how to diagnose certain conditions. And while we might get upset or maybe not desire patients who look up on Wikipedia or WebMD stuff, I appreciate that they're actually taking ownership of their medical care. And it's the same in the military. Soldiers will appreciate you wanting to learn, how do I do a correct salute? You know, how do I do these customs and courtesies? You know, saying sir or ma'am based on the rank, knowing what the ranks are, right? Okay, is that a diamond in the middle of the chest or is that a star? Because that's a big difference. But, you know, when do you call someone a sergeant versus when do you transition to master sergeant, right? So typically, you know, sergeant first class and below, or at least to the E5, you can call them sergeant. You know, but once someone's gotten master sergeant, they've earned that right to be called master sergeant. You should not call them sergeant. So small things and nuances like that are really important in the military. And again, if you take the time to learn these customs and courtesies, it's going to set you up for success and um, others to want to continue to teach you and watch you rank up. Because remember, on the operational side, your OER or your evaluation and your ratings, which determine your promotion, is not coming from a military or a medical provider. It's coming from your commander who's not medical. So the things that they're going to be writing in that box, whether you're top or middle block, is going to be usually military-based things. It's not going to be, oh, this person was able to diagnose this many conditions. Or No, they don't care about that. This is a great officer who understands military customs and courtesies, who took the time to learn about his and her, you know, or his or her soldiers. Um, and then another thing to kind of go on that is when we're talking about, you know, making these connections and uh, relationships with your younger enlisted is you know, looking out to them to make sure that you're set up for success too. So when I remember I went to the field, they gave me a duffel bag, but it wasn't set up yet. And like the new duffels are a lot easier. You, know, you have multiple, you have like a regular you know, duffel, you have a, a, I meant to say rucksack, sorry. But your rucksack typically isn't arranged or compiled for you. Now granted, you go on YouTube and find videos, and I did that. And because it wasn't arranged, I remember I spent like two hours and people listening who've done rucksacks before either understand and cope with that or laugh at me, right? But I remember I did it. And then the next day when I, because I knew we had a field operation coming up and then my medic had asked me, you know, hey doc, did you get your, you know, rucksack set up? And I go, yeah. And he goes, oh, we expected you to ask us. I was like, no, I'm going to try and figure it out myself. But they also were there in case I needed that assistance. And then when you go to the field, you don't even know what to bring, right? They're gonna give you the basic, you know, layout of hey, hey, bring this many pairs of socks, underwear, whatever it is. But they're not gonna mention stuff like bring ramen. Make sure you have at least two um, flashlights, one of which should be a head one that's attached to your Kevlar. Um, make sure you know what custom Kevlar inserts you can put to make it more comfortable. How to set up your Kevlar. Um, making sure you have like a goodie box of you know ramen, coffee. 
for me, one of the big things was bringing a hot water heater, not necessarily to make the ramen or coffee, but was to shave. Once you've had to shave for an entire week with cold water, you will never forget to bring a hot water heater, right? But you sure. learn those things, and then your medics will teach you, and they will watch you. It's actually very similar to how ICU nurses are. If you, if they want to play a prank on you, they're going to let you kind of sit there and flounder, making sure the patient's okay, right? They're like, oh my gosh, watch that person try and read that ABG. They have no idea what to do. Your medics are going to do the same thing to you. Like, all right, let's watch this doc. Let's see what he or she knows about this. And they're going to have some fun. They're going to do a little prank to kind of initiate you into the unit. And then they're going to look out for you because they're going to protect you as their doc, just like you're going to protect them as your medics. So looking out for when you have your first field operation, you better talk to your medics and find out, hey, what do I need to bring? Do I need to bring two boots? You better bring two boots because inevitably, if you don't, that one pair is going to get completely muddy and it's just going to be invisible for the rest of the day. You know, from a medical standpoint, we have a lot of, you know, we have ready heat. We have all these like cool gadgets that we can use to keep ourselves warm. We also have electricity because we need to have a heater if someone has, you know, uh, hypothermia or even have a swamp cooler or stuff like that if someone's going to have hyperthermia. But when you really work together and take the time to learn the cups and courtesies and embrace the suck is what they call it in the military and know that, yeah, you think this is unfortunate and not fun, but everyone else is doing it too. And if you can just appreciate that and just embrace it together, it just makes that time go by so much faster. And eventually, and another thing to pack for the reader or listeners out there is to have like one of those three stool little like portable chairs. So you can just carry it with you. And then once you have your command meeting in the field, you're not going to have chairs to sit on. And even if you do, I can guarantee you're not high ranking enough that you're going to earn that chair. So you better have a stool there so you can just sit down and listen to the whole thing. Because when you're wearing your full battle rattle, which is your full gear with the Kevlar and everything on with your uh, plates, it's heavy. And it's just going to take a toll on you day after day. Your back is going to be hurting. So when you have that stool, you can just sit down and kind of relax. Um, it's really going to make that time go by a lot faster. Well, thank you so much for agreeing to do the podcast today. It was really nice hearing from someone who is recently out of the military and also an attending, you know, to give us advice on what to expect from medical school in our futures. So thank you for uh, talking to us. Thank you so much, and best of luck to all the listeners out there.